he himself is our peace. Peace with God. The war is over for those whom God has rescued. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part two of He Himself is Our Peace. Is there such a thing as true and lasting peace? What would that look like? The fact is you can open just about any news feed, and you'll more often hear about conflict than peace conflict between countries and between individuals. What's needed is something called true shalom, genuine peace, where the conflict is truly and finally over, without even the possibility of that conflict arising ever again. Well, as you learn today, if you've ever sinned, even a single time, you are in conflict with a holy and righteous God. What you need, then, is that true shalom, that genuine peace restored. But how do you get that peace? Let's join Tom Pennington now as we discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Turn to Psalm 7. I want you to see this because it's hard for us to really grasp this. This is what the Bible teaches. Here David writes about this reality. Verse 8 of Psalm 7 The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. So here you have this dichotomy. There's the righteous and the wicked. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. So God rescues those who are righteous. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So God rescues the righteous. He is angry with the wicked every day as well. There is in God this sense of antagonism, of indignation against sinners. And we all are. In Isaiah, Isaiah makes this image very clear. Isaiah 42 He describes God as a warrior against his enemies. Isaiah 42, verse 13. Here you have part of a great section of Isaiah about the servant of Yahweh, a promise, a prophecy of Jesus Christ and who he will be and what he will do. Not only will he bring, verse 3, salvation to the weak and the, the repentant heart, but he'll also come as judge. Verse 13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. You get the picture behind this verse? Jesus Christ will bring the message of salvation, but there will come a day in which he will launch an assault against his enemies those who have not received him, those who have not accepted the message of peace. Paul makes the same point, but in different language. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all 
unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. Romans 2.5, because of your stubborn and rebellious heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Perhaps the best summary of all that I'm saying to you is found in Romans 5. Romans 5, notice verse 10. We were enemies. That's God's perspective. We were His enemies before we came to faith in Christ. God is at war with every unbeliever. He's already declared war, and someday He will begin the hostilities for real. That's implied in that wonderful statement, for He Himself is our peace. The reason we need peace is because God is at war. That's not talking about some subjective feeling you feel in your heart. It's talking about an objective state of peace, the cessation of hostilities. If there's the cessation of hostilities, that means before there was war. And that's exactly what the Bible describes. So, God is at war with every sinner. The second truth, the wonderful truth that really is the heart of this statement, is that in Christ, we can be reconciled to God. In Christ, we can be reconciled to God. We desperately need reconciliation. We need peace with God. God realized this, and because God is a God of love as well as a God of wrath and anger against sin, He begins to promise in the Old Testament that He's going to send someone who will bring the end of the war. Someone who will bring peace. You remember He begins to announce him that way in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What does he say about him? He is the prince of peace. He is the prince whose reign will be characterized not by war, but by peace. Turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. We quote this passage often at Christmas time in reference to Christ, but we don't read the whole passage. Micah chapter 5. Verse 2 speaks of where Christ would be born. But as for you, Bethlehem, Euphrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, where he would be born. Notice verse 4. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain... Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So even in the Old Testament, you begin to see the promise that God is going to send someone to reconcile himself to us, to bring peace where there is hostility, to bring truce where there is war. And when Christ came, it quickly became evident that he was the one that had been promised that would bring peace. You see it even at the announcement of his birth. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. You remember, suddenly there appeared with the angel there with the shepherds a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. 
This was a proclamation that peace with God is available to all men and all women, that this child would procure peace with God, the end of the war. He will secure that peace, notice, for all of those who are truly his subjects, peace among men with whom he is pleased. You see, when the angels pronounced peace on earth, they weren't primarily talking about world peace, although someday that will come under the reign of Christ. They were talking about a very personal, individual application of peace that grows out of a firsthand knowledge of the Prince of Peace. You know the Prince of Peace. You bow to Him, and you have peace with God. This is the message of the gospel. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. That's why in chapter 6, verse 15, it's called the gospel of peace. The good news that there can be peace with God. The war can be over. Peter, when he brought the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, said the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, that is the word Jesus sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. This is at the heart of the gospel, this reconciliation. Now turn back to Ephesians 2 and look at verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace. Notice that Christ doesn't just make peace or bring peace, although he does that. He is our peace. In his person, Jesus is peace for us with God. Peace with God is a person, Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is on the fact that in his own person, Jesus has reconciled us to God. He's the one who brings reconciliation to human relationships. He's the only one who can bring reconciliation between us and God. Isaiah 53, 5, we looked at a number of weeks ago now says the chastening to secure our well-being. You remember what that word well-being is? It's the word peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. The chastening to secure our peace fell on Him on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He Himself is our peace. Now, what is this reconciliation? Well, the Greek word that's translated reconcile originally meant to exchange. It was used in secular Greek for the process of money changing. If you've ever traveled internationally, you go to either a bank or someplace there at the airport or in the country to which you've traveled, and you exchange your money, U.S. dollars, for the currency that's there. There's an exchange rate that's set, and supposedly you're getting an equal amount of funds in that currency that you're giving them in U.S. currency. That's how this word was used in secular Greek, to exchange one set of coins of one kind for that of another of equal value. So here's the picture behind this word. When two people are reconciled, they exchange something. They exchange enmity and hostility for friendship. Where the relationship was characterized by hostility, you trade in the hostility and you get an equal amount of friendship, amiability, and relationship. Douglas Moo writes, 
To reconcile means to bring together, to make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. So reconciliation, don't miss this. This is the heart of what Paul is saying, that he's our peace. Reconciliation consists of two elements, the end of hostility and mutual acceptance and genuine friendship. Reconciliation consists of the end of all hostility and mutual acceptance and genuine friendship. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, reconciliation is not merely that which brings people into speaking terms again, who formerly passed one another without even looking at each other. It means really bringing together again, a reuniting, a reconnecting. It is not a compromise, the kind of thing that happens so often when a conference has gone on for days and there's been a deadlock and somebody suddenly gets a bright idea and suggests introducing a particular word or formula which just patches up the problem for a moment. It's not that, he says. It is a complete action. It produces complete amity and concord where there was formerly hostility. Listen carefully. Everyone outside of Christ is God's enemy. But in Christ, in reconciliation, that relationship changes completely. We go from being God's worst enemies to being his most beloved children. That's what reconciliation is. We go from being his worst enemies to being the special objects of his favor and love and care. That's reconciliation. Paul loves this image of reconciliation for what God did in Christ at the cross. He uses it often. Romans chapter 5. In fact, turn there again. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 He says, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And he ends verse 11 saying, we exult in God through whom we have received the reconciliation. There is reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, he makes the same point. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You were formerly alienated and hostile, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. But my favorite passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us who now have been reconciled the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's how he reconciled us. Verse 21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I want you to notice in this passage 
that reconciliation needs to happen from both sides. Notice verse 19, God's side. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself by sending his son. But man's side is accomplished when the sinner accepts by faith the completed work of Christ. Look at verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the only way. This is the only way to go from God being God's worst enemy to being his most cherished son or daughter is through Christ and through what he did. If you think you know God or you think you have God's favor, but you have not embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are deceiving yourself. There is no other way to have peace with God. There's no other way for the war to be over. And if you think you've not done that, but you're not at war with God, you better listen to God's assessment because he says, you are. God is at war with every sinner, but in Christ, we can be reconciled to God. We can have peace, not only the end of the war, but mutual acceptance and genuine care and love and concern. It would have been wonderful to have lived in the first century and to have seen the magnificent piece of architecture that was Herod's temple. By the time of Jesus' life, they'd been working on it for 50 years building that magnificent temple. There were huge courtyards surrounded by beautiful arched balustrades big enough to hold hundreds of thousands of people. But the focal point of the Temple Mount in the first century, in the center of that massive mount was a building, the temple proper. At the very front of it, it was 150 feet high by 150 feet wide. That's 50 yards high by 50 yards wide. A massive structure. And if you had been a priest and you were allowed, you could have walked in the front door of that massive entrance into what was called the holy place. This is where the priest ministered daily. And as you walked into that massive structure and looked toward the back, there would have been a perfect small cube. One room, one small cube toward the very rear. It was 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was accessible by only one man and by him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest could enter that little cube set in the back of that massive building. It was separated, the Holy of Holies as it was called, from the holy place by a massive curtain. The Jewish Mishnah tells us that that curtain that separated the holy place from, the holy of holies rather, from the holy place was 30 feet by 60 feet, and it was made of 72 squares that had been sewn together. It was suspended from four gold-covered pillars Josephus tells us it was a magnificently beautiful curtain, mostly and primarily a rich blue, decorated with gold thread and gold emblems all across it. But perhaps the most impressive thing about this curtain was the sheer massive character of it, because this curtain was a hand-breadth thick, four inches thick. 
The rabbinical literature tells us that the priests claimed it took 300 men to handle it. It was there for a reason. It was there as a barrier. It was there as a wall of a sorts. It pictured the distance that sinful people must remain from the presence of a holy God. But at the exact moment that Jesus died, the priest serving in the temple that day heard an awful sound. And they looked in horror and saw that four-inch thick curtain which had hung there for years being ripped, and it ripped completely in two. And as Matthew tells us, it ripped from the top to the bottom. Clearly a divine act. Clearly a commentary on the death of his son that was happening just outside the city walls as the Passover lamb was being slain in the temple and as the high priest himself perhaps either had just entered or was about to enter into the Holy of Holies. What was the message of the torn curtain? It was certainly the end of symbolism and all of its shadows. It was the end of the priesthood and all of the sacrificial system. But mostly, it was the end of a barrier between the sinner and God. Our great high priest had entered into the presence of God himself to offer himself as the sacrifice. And he didn't come out like the earthly high priest and try to pull the curtain together, but he tore it down and he let sinners in. Through Christ, we can come to God directly. We need no priest. We need no sacrifice. We need no ritual. God the Father wanted us to know that in the death of His Son, the way into His presence for all of us who will believe for all who will turn from their sins and follow His Son, the way has been made. We have been reconciled to God. The war is over. Don't stay at a distance. Come and be the special objects of my care and favor. How did He do that? He did it through His Son. For He Himself is our peace, our shalom. If you sin, if you have ever sinned, then you are by nature God's enemy. And God's character, the Bible tells us, demands justice. It demands that that sin be dealt with as it deserves. And every sin contains enough guilt because it is committed against a holy, creating, omnipotent God. Every sin contains enough guilt to damn us forever to eternal punishment away from the presence of God. But while God is holy... And while He is just, and while He is filled with wrath against sin, God is also love. God loved the world, and He sent His Son to demonstrate that love. If you have any doubt that God loves you, look at the cross where He slew His own Son. And He invites every sinner who is currently at war with Him to be reconciled. I beg you, Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Put down your arms of rebellion. If you will today, if you have not already, if you will today, turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then the war will be over. And you will go from being God's worst enemy to being His most beloved child. We have been reconciled. Our Father, we thank You for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank You that He willingly gave up His life, the innocent for the guilty, so that He might reconcile us to You. 
Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ, for his life and for his death. And we thank you that even now he stands in your presence as our great high priest, having entered the Holy of Holies once for all. We thank you in his great name. Amen. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, He Himself is Our Peace. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast as he once again brings us to God's Word. Do join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.